from a medical point of view, um, autism, we can think in terms of autism spectrum disorders. These are considered to be developmental conditions uh, that have a particular set of diagnostic criteria and common symptoms in autism spectrum disorder can include repetitive behaviours. And that's why we were very interested in this project in the link between uh, behavioural addictions and autism. Somebody who's autistic is generally going to have some differences, which could become dif difficulties and challenges. Let's say differences in how they communicate, how they interact with other people. So that could be as simple as language, non-verbal behaviour, but as well as things like people's social drive, their uh, desire to interact with other people, as well as their practical difficulties. Fundamentally, it's a diagnosis as it's technically understood. It's also a community to some degree, although people would argue with that. It's also a neurotype. This requires a very long answer, but the technical definition is that it's a diagnosis with a set of clinical diagnostic criteria to do with neurotype and information processing and experience and how that expresses in the world. Earlier years, we thought that to be autistic, you needed to have you needed to have presented with autistic-like behaviours before the age of three. Now we know that that's no longer the case, and we now understand that some people may, in those early years, seem to be developing in a fairly typical way. But it's perhaps they have puberty, or perhaps it's really once they've left school and the demands of adult life and being independent that that. The challenges of that means you're more likely to see some of the autistic features coming to the fore and that's why somebody might come for a diagnosis um, or diagnostic assessment much later on in life. Welcome to the SSA podcast. On this podcast, we, we're used to talking about issues of substance use, but far less used to the issues surrounding autism. And with over 700,000 people in the UK uh, who are autistic, it's important that the interaction between addiction and autism is, is explored and is understood so that policy research and treatment can provide the best response to people who need them. This is the first of two episodes exploring this issue. In this initial episode, uh, we're going to talk about the links between autism and behavioural and substance addictions and some of those implications. In episode two, we're going to focus on the implications for treatment and for policy and what changes um, and future research needs to happen in order to improve both our understanding in this area and how we respond to issues of autism and addiction. As is the case with most issues, the best place to start is by talking to someone with lived experience. I spoke to Chris Torrey, who is autistic and who works in addiction treatment services, and I asked him about some of the behaviours that are associated with autism that can also be associated with addiction. For some autistic people, there are arguably positive things which then become negative in, say, repetition, in certain kinds of regulation. Um, people use addictive behaviours, both autistic people and non-autistic people, for lots of different reasons, to regulate, to experience pleasure, to you know minimise stress or engagement with a world that might feel distressing or overly complex or overwhelming. It's a big question. I don't have a simple answer for it. Um, some behavioural, what you would call behavioural addictions for autistic people will likely be very similar or the same in their presentations. As for non-autistic people, you know, things like computer games are designed to be very addictive and trigger those dopamine responses and do the addiction thing. They're literally designed that way. It's arguably with 
gambling too, for example. So I think it's important to consider with this and also with presumably other questions that are going to come up that sometimes we're talking about things which might relate specifically to autistic experience and some things we are probably looking at similar realms of experience and reasons to non-autistic people to neurotypical people. One thing that is similar for autistic people and non-autistic people is the experience or the impact that, that reward can have on behaviour. I spoke to Sam Chamberlain and Julia Sinclair. They are both professors of psychiatry at the University of Southampton. Sam leads a clinical service in the NHS for people with behavioural addictions and Julia runs an alcohol care team at University Hospital Southampton. Um, Their co-leads, along with Janine Robinson, who we'll hear from later in the podcast, in the SABA project, which stands for Substance Use, Alcohol and Behavioural Addictions in Autism, I asked uh, Julia and Sam about the role of reward in behavioural addictions and autism. So in terms of behavioural addictions, we know that certain behaviours can have um, be associated with reward, um, a little bit like some types of substances like alcohol can. So some behaviours can become addictive for some people. A key example of that, for example, would be gambling disorder, where people lose control over gambling. And the reason that we were interested in potential overlap between autism and behavioural addictions is that in people with autism, there's often repetitive behaviours. So we're not saying necessarily that they may be gambling disorder, but we're simply we're interested in whether there could be overlap uh, between the two types of um, condition. So, um, you know, all, all addictions have a have a number of um, etiological strands, um, one of which is about reward. And then you get reach the stage with the reward where you have a loss of control. But underpinning all of that then is, is about some of the habitual cues that people may have in order to continue with use. And that then includes access to means. So you have a number of strands that um, may have an influence on this. Janine Robinson works alongside uh, Sam Chamberlain and Julia Sinclair on the SABA project. Uh, Janine is a consultant clinical psychologist who works in a diagnostic service for adults who think that they might be autistic or whose friends and families think that might be the case. Uh, She's also a national clinical advisor for autism in the NHS. I spoke to Janine about her work diagnosing uh, people with autism, um, about some of those processes and about how that overlaps with some of the behavioural symptoms of addiction, and finally how the SABA project hopes to address some of these issues. When you're doing an assessment, it's not, although on the one hand it's a snapshot because you've got one opportunity, you know, over a period of maybe days or weeks or whatever that you're seeing the person, but there's one opportunity to see this person as an, let's say for me as an adult, but you're getting, you're looking for patterns, and you're trying to get examples across the lifespan. And if that person was always somehow out of sync, that if they played games, but they went beyond what anybody else was doing. So they weren't just playing the computer game. They had to know the backstory. They had to know the cheats that I'm speaking as somebody who thinks that, who doesn't know anything about gaming, but anyway, I, I sort of know a little bit about it through, through people I speak to, but it's, it's something you'll be looking to see is this the tendency that this person isn't just playing games they're actually it's the backstory it's the details it's uh, there's another level that's the intensity and the um the extent to which this takes up their life i suppose that that would be different so you would in your assessment and certainly in your report you would be needing to consider is this different either in the extent um the impact and the depth 
of the interaction or of the um, engagement compared to other people of their age or of their group. I suppose when you're working as a diagnostician, you need to have a very broad lens. You need to be able to identify when somebody is autistic or not, so you're able to make that diagnosis. But you also need to know enough about other conditions and other behaviours to know whether, well, is this indicative of autism, a core feature of autism, or could this actually be, yeah, could this be an, an additional addiction behaviour? Could this be another mental health condition as well? Or could it be one rather than the other? This is where it's really important and why this project is so important that we're having a range of people around the table from different positions so that what I know about autism and what I know about addiction is very different to what somebody else across the table knows. And, and hence we're able to learn from each other and work out actually, is there, some, is there some overlap here? Is there something that would inform the work that I do as a diagnostician in autism, which would be really important? Should there be more questions that we ask? Maybe our diagnostic tools need to consider more carefully that fine line between when somebody something maybe becomes a behavioural addiction versus something that's perhaps core part of autism. Then moving beyond issues of diagnosis, you have this kind of idea of, of behaviours that may mean one thing if they uh, come from autistic behaviour and they may mean another if they come from uh, addictive behaviour. And, and I find that, uh, that overlap really interesting. One of the other issues that Saba, the Saba project were looking at was the, the differences in why autistic people might use alcohol or drugs in the first place. I asked Julia about this and about how that might vary across different people who are autistic. I think it is um, thinking through how people might use a substance perhaps for medication of other um, things that are distressing for them and when we think particularly about autistic spectrum we might be thinking about social anxiety particularly um, which is um, and, and people feeling that they can't necessarily fit in and looking at ways that that they can kind of feel like they are perhaps being part of a, a normal and I use use that term carefully but in terms of um, trying to fit in with with other people in a group there is an over-representation of um, problematic sort of alcohol and, and substance use in people who are on the autistic spectrum but that's also quite different then depending on the level of autism so what we have here is kind of several spectrum disorders you know people's substance use may be on a spectrum alcohol use may be on a spectrum and their kind of um, manifestation of autism is also on a spectrum and so for people who are perhaps profoundly um, intellectually disabled and within kind of care, their likelihood of being able to access alcohol and other drugs is significantly reduced. And therefore, in that group, we um, anticipate and the studies that have looked at it would show that actually there, there is less um, alcohol and um, substance use disorder. But in, in, in people who are, are living in communities, then it seems to be that those are overrepresented. But again, we don't really have a good handle on how best to measure those and in which communities. Chris Torrey added some really interesting detail from his experiences uh, working in addiction treatment services. 
I've certainly worked to support autistic people who have fallen into substance misuse for reasons like coping with social anxiety, coping with overwhelm, or um, you know struggling to change something once it becomes embedded as part of a routine, which can be really challenging. But how this ties into the specifically autistic experience in a way that's simply differentiable from non-autistic experience is um, you know poorly understood. I spoke to somebody a few months ago um, when diagnosing them with autism and they described their alcohol uh, use they were a bit worried about it and what they said was it wasn't so much that they preferred drinking when they were out socializing it was more when other people were drinking they were more honest and they were more direct in their communication you know how if you think you let your hair down a bit and you, you speak your mind and so for the autistic person who's maybe struggling usually to work up, well, what does he mean? And is he saying this? Does he mean what he's saying? Actually, in a social situation, everybody is a bit drunk. Maybe you find it a bit easier to understand because you think this person's probably being more truthful. I found that observation from Janine uh, really interesting. Uh, another variation on the, the Hemingway, I drink to make other people more interesting uh, quote. So then we have these these differences and similarities in, in diagnosis and in behaviours related to autism and addiction. One of the, the important part, as ever, is, is treatment and making sure that people have um, good access to support when they need it. As part of the SABA project, Julia has spoken to people who work in uh, autism services and in addiction services and, and talks about some of the, the differences in, in approaches between those two. When you talk to clinicians in autism services, they will say, yes, we see many, many people who have substance use disorder um, and we're not quite sure about how best to refer them on for treatment. When you ask clinicians within um, substance use disorders, they services, they'll often say, and we don't have that many people with autistic spectrum. And so I think part of the challenge is that um, within the autism assessment services, people are being specifically asked that question about their substance use. And so you're, you're kind of revealing it if it's there. I think within substance use disorder services, what you have is, is perhaps the question not being asked. Um, and if it is being asked, perhaps, you know, there's now a lack of trained specialists within um, addiction services who might be able to pick up that this is a problem. People who present with autism may struggle far more in dealing with some of the psychological therapies, which are the absolute mainstay of most treatments that are offered, and it is all group. And so if you are somebody with autistic spectrum, you may really, really struggle not only to um, kind of complete the, the kind of comprehensive assessment that people are subjected to, but also to then actually engage with um, psychological therapies in a group situation. Things like uh, treatment structures around group work can be really difficult for some people because it's overwhelming or stressful. The sensory environment can be really unpleasant. Lots of you know fluorescent lights and noise and lots of people interacting in sometimes intense and difficult to process ways. So yeah, for me, a lot of it is to do with making accommodations based on people's treatment needs. And as with any treatment delivery fundamentally that's about asking people what they need and giving them space to answer it honestly and directly and then taking that seriously and acting on it. As an autistic person who works in addiction treatment services I asked Chris whether being autistic 
uh, had an impact on his work or helped him to understand different elements of autism or addiction? So that's a really complicated question. Um, I've been lucky to be able to spend time with and get to know lots of different kinds of people in my life in general and some of that is to do with time spent with other neurodivergent people um, and I guess ideas around accommodation and flexibility and understanding where people are at and dealing with them on that basis has been useful in terms of learning to give space to difference or it may not be obvious that it's there and that's useful for anybody um, and really important as a healthcare provider and something that I've learned in that arena. Um, I think that's useful for anybody who's experiencing addiction, who's coming into treatment, that they're going to be treat, you know, accepted as they are. Um, I don't think it's particularly controversial to say people with substance misuse problems are not necessarily treated particularly well or thought of particularly acceptingly across society to the extent that they perhaps could be and people make a lot of assumptions and that affects people's experiences of treatment. Um, to be clear I had the same proportion of clients who didn't like me as anybody did and hopefully a similar proportion of clients who did. There's no uh, magic bullet or single strategy as I'm sure you know. So this was all focused on alcohol and substance services Obviously, Sam Chamberlain works with uh, behavioural addictions uh, and treatment services for behavioural addictions are are very different in the UK. They, they tend to be dealt with in different clinics, uh, if at all. So I asked Sam about some of those challenges. There's lots of parallels, really, with what was described for the alcohol and substance use um, sort of services. But behavioural addictions, it, it's slightly different because we don't generally have treatment services in the UK for many of these conditions, we're in a fortunate position now that for gambling disorder, um, the NHS recognises gambling disorder as a long-term priority for the first time. So what we're seeing is several new clinics emerge throughout the country. Uh, and as part of that, we need to think through, you know, how and work with people who have autism, you know, how can we design the services to make sure that people with autism who also develop you know, a behavioural addiction feel um, able to find out about the services that are available, engage and undertake the treatment. And we would expect similar uh, challenges as already described. For example, a lot of the treatments for gambling disorder would involve group therapy. And that may be difficult for some people uh, with autism, for example. And so I would say that we're at an earlier stage, though, because many of these clinics are either just about to open or not opened yet. Um, more broadly, for other behavioural addictions, generally there aren't NHS clinics. Um, there are in other parts of Europe and also in the US for some of the other behavioural addictions. And here I will be thinking, for example, of things like compulsive shopping disorder, compulsive sexual behaviour disorder. These are recently recognised mental health diagnoses, um, but less well studied. So often there is no clinic and not so much awareness of how we should treat them. Well, I think, um, I think our um, project highlights some of the unmet needs, so kind of priority areas in terms of practice, for example. So one issue is that many clinicians may not be familiar with autism. Uh, other clinicians, for example, who are familiar with autism may have no training in uh, behavioral addictions or substance use disorders. 
So I suppose my advice would be to do some reading and see if they could get some training in identifying these different conditions and understanding them a bit better. And ideally, of course, also having the opportunity to speak with people with these conditions to learn from them about how they might adapt their practice to make sure that, that, um, that services are better able to cater to the needs of different people. It's amazing how often good service provision comes down to talking to the people who use that service. And with autism and addiction, that is no different. So that's the end of the first part of this uh, two-part podcast. Um, In part two, uh, we're going to talk about policy implications, how to design good treatment services for autistic people who use substances, as well as some of the the knowledge gaps, some of the things that that we don't yet know about, about this fascinating area.